Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Sean Kirkland. Uh, Sean is Associate Professor at uh, DePaul University and the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. He is uh, got his PhD in philosophy from State University of New York at Stony Brook, and he's also um, been educated in Germany as well. His primary interest is in ancient Greek philosophy, but also works in phenomenology. He's written a handful of books, one which has recently come out, which is called Heidegger's Destruction of Aristotle on How to Read the Tradition uh, through Northwestern University Press. Um, Fabulous book. Absolutely fabulous book. He also has another book in the works uh, on Aristotle, and uh, it's called Aristotle on Tragic Temporality. Um, He also has other uh, projects uh, in the pipeline uh, on uh, many of them on the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, So he's he he stays busy, and uh, he is an absolute uh, gem in terms of uh, sifting through all of this philosophy that many people have worked on um, for many, many, many years. But I find that his perspective is uh, clear, novel, uh, fresh, uh, and super accurate to to the writers and the thinking. And so um, just an absolute wonderful mind. He is quite brilliant. I, I absolutely enjoyed reading his book. Um, Heidegger's Destruction of Aristotle, and that's what uh, this conversation is is all about. Um, I I have I have told him that he is absolutely welcome to uh, come back on the the podcast again, since he has so many other things uh, in the works. So hopefully that will happen. Uh, we start by talking about uh, how he came to write this book on Heidegger and Aristotle's philosophy. Uh, we talk about the idea of destruction of uh, the philosophical tradition and the differences between positive and negative destruction. We give an overview of Heidegger's philosophy, talk about Dasein, being, existence, being the world, many concepts that I've talked about here in the podcast before. We talk about Aristotle's main concepts, talk about substance and how they persist today. We talk about the threefold aspect of, of Nietzsche's thought. We talk about how we understand the idea of concepts and what Aristotle means by them talk about three tactics of destructive methods. We talk about the phenomenological reduction, uh, construction and destruction. We talk about truth and art and many other topics. Uh, Again, I absolutely loved his book. I love this conversation. It felt um, really important to have an accurate reading of of how these two philosophers engage. And of course, other philosophers are in the mix as well. But it really was... It was just in the nitty gritty. I mean, it was in the details. It wasn't, you know, kind of the same old overview of things. It was, we we talked about this idea of destruction and positive and negative destruction, what that looks like, how it's misunderstood. Um, and, you know, I found that really uh, fulfilling. I think, you know, many philosophers, they write these big, 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 big pieces and and, you know, it's sometimes just hard to kind of get all of it. And I think um, when when in the corpus of somebody's work, you can take one or two major pieces and just study that your whole life. Uh, that's not necessarily what Sean's doing. But I thought it was really nice to talk about this idea of destruction 
uh, what that means, what that looks like, have a little bit more accuracy to it, uh, and really just get in the weeds of that and not have to get into, uh, you know, all of the overview of everything. And so there, there's a there's a brief summary of, you know, Heidegger and Aristotle's thought, but really just focused on uh, the kind of details of, of uh, destruction and what that looks like. And so I was um, really, really encouraged by uh, his work and um, in his book, which is great. And I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation, all past and upcoming conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. Uh, subscribe, like, engage, share with your friends, all the things. Um, you can do the same for YouTube as well. I'm over there also. And I'd uh, love, to, love to hear what people think about this episode or other episodes. So, so uh, don't be shy. And uh, now I bring you Sean Kirkland. I am here with Sean Kirkland. Sean, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to talking with you. Thanks a lot for the uh, invitation, Xavier. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so I'm I'm uh, very excited for your, your uh, book coming out that you uh, just finished. It's one of, one of many, I guess, projects you're working on. It's uh, the book is called Heidegger and the Destruction of Aristotle. On how to read the tradition. It's a fantastic title. <laughs> it will make sense once we get into the conversation if people read the book. But uh, talking about uh, the destruction of Aristotle on a title is is, uh, is edgy. So that's that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, yeah. People are already really. It seems like we're in the we're in a good cultural moment for destruction. People are really interested. So that's, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so for for folks that don't know who you are. Uh, just say uh, what your background's in, you know, what your, uh, where, where you uh, do research, where you study, where you've studied at, uh, and all the things that you're thinking and writing about now. Sure. Uh, thanks, Xavier. So I, um, <clears throat> I am a uh, associate professor of philosophy at uh, DePaul University. And um, my area of specialization is really ancient Greek philosophy, primarily, although also 19th and 20th century continental philosophy um, as sort of a secondary um, area of specialization. Um, I've published uh, on Plato and Aristotle and uh, pre-Socratics, as well as Greek tragedy. Um, and uh, um, I'm currently working on a uh, sort of a, a two projects on Nietzsche. One is a translation of the first volume of the Kritische Studienausgabe brought out by Colleen Montanari. Um, and that includes The Birth of Tragedy and a bunch of other unpublished uh, uh, texts. Uh, and I'm working on that with Andrew Mitchell at uh, Emory University. And um, in sort of uh, alongside that, I'm also working on a monograph for Edinburgh University Press um, on the 1873 text that Nietzsche wrote but never never completed or published called Philosophy in the Tragic Age of the Greeks. And that was meant to be a sort of sister volume, if you will, um, to The Birth of Tragedy, where Nietzsche would sort of explain the sources of early Greek um, pre-Platonic for him uh, uh, philosophical thinking uh, along the same lines that he had explained the origins or sources of uh, Greek tragic poetry. Well, I mean, that's uh, <laughs> listeners will will be like, "Wow, you you must do this full time." But I mean, I'm I'm sure that you also are teaching classes as well and have a personal yeah. life and all that. So you're fitting all this stuff in in between all the other things in your world. So that's uh, that's pretty pretty outstanding. Yeah, yeah, the personal life part. Yeah, well, but I'm definitely teaching and uh, and all the administrative work that. Yeah, 
yeah. that's happening. Well, <laughs> I, I've uh, I've I've said it many times here. Is is uh, I'm a big Nietzsche fan. He's one of my favorites, um, and uh, has been for I mean, really ever. And um, so that's just a it's just a good excuse to get you back on here at some point when you're ready. Sure. Um, Sounds great. So the uh, so the book that you that you have uh, coming out uh, first is this one on Heidegger and Aristotle. Um, I, I guess uh, just just briefly, you don't have to give me the full, I guess, kind of download for it. But how did you come about not not necessarily writing this book, but how did you come to approaching these two philosophers and their work together in this way? How, why was this the kind of conceptualization or the angle in which you decided to talk about Heidegger and and, Nietzsche, or, um, and Aristotle? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a kind of maybe it kind of a by autobiography, I guess, that I, I have another book uh, with uh, Edinburgh University Press right now under review uh, called Aristotle and Tragic Temporality. It's a study of the temporality of human life as it appears in um, Aristotle's treatment of tragedy and the poetics. Um, and uh, when I was writing that book, I I sort of uh, recalled back to my student days um, in Wuppertal, Germany. I studied at the Bergische Universität Wuppertal, um, and I wrote my dissertation under Klaus Held. Uh, uh, and I, I remember that at that time there was a real, uh, my dissertation was on Plato, and it was a sort of phenomenological interpretation of early the early dialogues in Socratic method. Um, but I... Uh, at that time, there were a number of really amazing Heidegger experts on the faculty. In addition to Held, Heinrich Huny and Peter Travny were there, um, Georg Siegmann and um, a number of other uh, individuals. I think there were four different editors of Gesamtausgabe volumes, uh, um, uh, Claudia Struber and uh, I think I'm forgetting someone, but the um, no, maybe that's it. Um, yeah, yeah, the all-star team there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was kind of a strange... Uh, uh, concentration of uh, uh, Heidegger scholarship. Yeah. So there were all kinds of seminars on Heidegger and reading groups. And um, and I participated in a lot of those. And I, I had read a number of these early uh, lecture courses that Heidegger gives in the in 1920s before Being in Time comes out in, the, in 1927 on Aristotle. And uh, I sort of vaguely recollected them. And I thought, well, I should probably go back to those and and take a look. I'm doing a kind of phenomenological interpretation of Aristotle. It's certainly influenced by Heidegger. I should look back on in, into some of those discussions. And it and when I returned to those, I was looking for specific discussions of Aristotelian concepts or passages that I thought would be interesting. But what I kept being fascinated by was this method of what Heidegger calls in the early 20s destruction. So destruction as a method of interpretation or destruction as a method of interpreting tradition-bearing texts. So texts that bear or articulate and sort of pass along the tradition we inherit. Um, and that method of reading the tradition and reading the texts of the tradition is what really fascinated me because I, I started to realize that it, it really is a kind of a hermeneutic method. There's a, there are strategies to it. There are steps involved in it and um, specific tactics one uses to destroy a text rather than just to read a text closely or to read a text critically. Yeah. Destroying a text with Heidegger means something very specific. And so 
I sort of became really fascinated with that. And I thought, well, maybe I could write a, a, a short sort of treatment of that because in even among really actually serious Heidegger scholars, so not myself, but real Heideggerian scholars, that hadn't been something that I had found in the literature. And the more I investigated, I didn't find people reading destruction as a a kind of hermeneutic method, as an as a method for interpreting texts. I found them sort of situating it in the development of Heidegger's career. How does Heidegger engage with the history of philosophy in order to liberate thinking uh, for some sort of new philosophical project? And so that's that's how I came to write on Heidegger um, and his readings of, of of Aristotle specifically, or his destructive readings of Aristotle. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, it is. Isn't something that is uh, at least uh, you know, at least in the English language, at least on, on on my you know kind of observation of it, that's talked about that much. And so, um, I, I might have this wrong, but to to I've read it somewhere or seen it somewhere that it, Aristotle was one of the the folks that Heidegger lectured on the most. Uh, yeah. even even more than Nietzsche. So I'm sure you've read the. Uh, the the two well it's four volumes and two books yeah. on on uh, lectures by um uh, Heidegger on Nietzsche and a lot of it's yeah. on will to power which is really interesting and mm-hmm. um but uh but um but Aristotle was the most he lectured on now I don't know how yeah. many of how much of those has been put into some of the the the, the full um kind of works into mm-hmm. English I know it's I'm assuming it's most of it's in German but maybe a lot of it is but um. Yeah, the, he he definitely. I would say, at least for me, and I don't think these two guys are alone in this, but definitely emphasized it was you know both Nietzsche and Heidegger really had a kind of uh, uh, shift or a kind of a way of trying to say like, well, we should probably kind of go back and look at all of these you know, pre-Platonic or pre-Socratic philosophers and then the actual Greeks and and see how we can kind of bring this to the 20th century, if you will. Uh, maybe not exactly that kind of way in a linear way, but they definitely were interested uh, more so than, I guess, the folks that were before them and trying to implement that in what they were both uh, up to. So I guess the question here is, is what do you think for, for Heidegger, just kind of generally, what was it about his... Um, about Aristotle's ideas and his his philosophy of the world um, and a, and of a, a humans that you know Heidegger wanted to pull from that, especially with his concepts of you know Dasein and just you know, ontology in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right that Heidegger I think um, lectured on Aristotle more than any other figure. Uh, there, I I, I think yeah. he let, he offered twelve different lecture courses between 1919 and 1927 on Aristotle, or principally or 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 primarily on on Aristotle. So um, it was really a, it's a lot. And, yeah, that's a that's a and and extensive readings of Aristotle mm-hmm. and a, a book length kind of interpretations effectively of, of Aristotle. Um, and the uh, you know somewhat famously the 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 text that sort of pushes Heidegger in the direction of philosophy in addition to the influence of Husserl. Um, but already at the age of seventeen, uh, Heidegger reads. Um, he's on his on, on a trajectory to 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 enter really uh, to to be to be a student of theology, basically, and enter the seminary. But uh, the uh, he the 
the text that he reads is Brentano's um, on the many senses of being in Aristotle at 17. And so he has a really longstanding kind of fundamental philosophical um, interest in uh, Aristotle and Aristotle's discussion of ontology from very early on. Um, and so that's sort of funding some of that interest as well. Um, but more substantively, I think when Heidegger looks back at the tradition, on the one hand, he's he both he and Nietzsche are sort of the recipients of a kind of historicist um, movement in the 19th century in Germany. That is to say, they're both... Uh, from their perspective, thinking is a sort of irremediably historically situated activity. So in thinking, there's no transcending the material and sort of cultural linguistic conditions in which the subject exists to um, get access to some sort of universal, uh, timeless uh contents of 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 thought uh, instead thinking is always determined by the cultural historical and linguistic context in which it occurs um and so given that and given the condition of the cultures they both find themselves in they look back at the tradition and see the tradition as something that needs to be critiqued uh they they think that the contents of the tradition that they inherit and that are determining what they're able to think um, that requires a kind of uh, critical intervention. And um, for Heidegger, Aristotle is sort of the fundamental inaugurating figure of that tradition, more so than for Nietzsche. For Nietzsche, he sees really Socrates and Plato as kind of the the, the threshold figures, um, I think, for for the, the, the origin of the Western philosophical tradition that he inherits. But for Heidegger, it's Aristotle. Primarily because the Aristotelian sort of reception of uh, previous philosophy, so Aristotle's interpretation of the pre-Socratics, Aristotle's interpretation of Plato, his invention of substance ontology. For Heidegger, I think that's what kind of gives the defining set of concepts to both the Middle Ages, the scholasticism of the Middle Ages, and then all the way to the early modern period in through um, Descartes and rationalism, empiricism, all of that operates with, for Heidegger, fundamentally Aristotelian concepts. And so for Heidegger, the reason that Aristotle is so fundamental is that he's he inaugurates, he takes that Greek tradition and gives it its articulation that then... Um, is sort of the, the 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 definitive influence on the subsequent Western tradition, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's a great way of explaining it. I guess since we're we're still here kind of a little bit on Nietzsche, is, is my understanding with this is that you know Heidegger sees everything or most things, I guess, through uh, you know, being some sense of, you know, philosophy ontology of sorts. I mean, he just saw that with with everything. And and when you I think when when people really study and read Heidegger, it makes a lot of sense why he was trying to do that. And so using Aristotle in this way of seeing this as kind of almost a progenitor for how all of the ways in which he wanted to really just, you know, kind of explode with this kind of idea and how essential it was. And, and then obviously pulling in, you know, who's rules phenomenology. I think with Nietzsche, it was more of, you know, they both liked, uh, 
Heraclitus. They both liked, you know, many of the the Greeks, but with Nietzsche, it's, it it was more. Nietzsche was less about being, although Heidegger likes to have his interpretation of that, but more so of the kind of uh, aspects of the 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 world and and mm-hmm. aspects of how how we are in the space, less so about, um, you know, just just who we are as as uh, as individuals as humans uh, uh, with within a within a sense when he's treating the Greeks. Um, so so let's talk about uh, let's talk about destruction. I guess this will be probably important. Um, we can just give a a brief overview of of Aristotle and and uh, and Heidegger's major concepts just for review um, afterwards. But so first, so of course, when you were talking about destruction in the in the beginning of the book, I, I you know I was like, okay, when are we going to get the reference to Werner Marx? Because you know you got to talk about Werner Marx, right? And um and it, it comes a little bit later, so I'm mm-hmm. going to bring it up here just so mm-hmm. we can have the nice kind of just general overview. You also bring up uh, another favorite of mine, Gadamer. Love Gadamer; mm-hmm. he's great. Um, so okay, so maybe you can tell us how how do we understand this idea of destruction? And if I get this cor- got this correct, I think for both uh, Werner Marx and Gadamer, they saw destruction as a negative, at least how Heidegger is looking at this. Um, but Heidegger, you're describing is seeing this as a positive destruction. So, mm-hmm. so maybe just give us an idea of what is this destruction we're talking about, and then this idea is between a, a, a negative and a positive destruction of, of some of the stuff that Aristotle's doing with tradition. Sure, Xavier. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right about um, Werner Marx and uh, Gadamer sort of perceiving Heidegger's project of destruction as fundamentally and really maybe exhaustively negative that mm-hmm. that it's it's a it's a preliminary step for both of them there's a re- requisite destruction of the tradition we inherit and then once that tradition's been destroyed we can think in different terms we can we can think differently uh going forward and so for them both the destructive moment is kind of a preliminary moment to the thinking that Heidegger wants to initiate and I think that's fundamentally wrong. I, I think for Heidegger, and, and Heidegger, by the way, repeatedly uh, insists that destruction, although the the initial sense of the word um, seems predominantly negative, yeah. <laughs> um, he he insists over and over again that uh, that destruction is actually positive. He says in Being in Time um, something like, "To bury the past in nullity is." Um, not the purpose of this of of this destruction this method of destruction its aim is positive and so that was kind of one of the fundamental questions of the book that you you know that you're you're focused in on is in what way is heidegger's engagement with the texts of the tradition um that he calls destruction fundamentally positive what's the positive gain that is actually produced by destruction itself not just how does destruction prepare the ground for some positive project of thinking? But how is destruction itself positive? How is how, how can Heidegger justify that claim? And um, and the basic uh, the the basic um, so both Marx and and Gadamer see that destruction as uh, sort of a, a engaging with um, the text of the tradition of philosophy. Um, on a certain ground, uh, Marx says that, uh, you know, in this book, uh, Heidegger und die Tradition, Heidegger and the Tradition, 
it's very clear that for Marx, that and is a disjunctive and. It means Heidegger's one thing and the tradition's another. Um, and I think, like I said, I think that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, Marx says what Heidegger wants to do is take philosophy in a different direction and move it into a different dimension than philosophy, than uh, the tradition has operated in. And again, I think that's wrong. I think what Heidegger wants to do is dig back into those texts of the tradition. And this is in order to sort of follow him in this path, we really have to emphasize what has not previously been emphasized. That is that this destructive method is not a culture critique or something broad and sort of airy like that. It's a very precise method for reading tradition bearing texts. And insofar as it does that, what Heidegger wants to do over and over again is, and most centrally in the text of Aristotle, read those texts find the concepts that Aristotle is articulating in those texts, the concepts that then will be passed along into the tradition, developed, reflected on, associated with other concepts, applied, etc., all the way down to us. Um, so Heidegger wants to identify those concepts and the definitions that they take on. And then he wants to dig down in those texts in the places where he finds a trace of the experiential ground out of which those concepts are being articulated. So moments in the Aristotelian text where Aristotle is indicating the experience that he's having pre-conceptually, mm -hmm. and out of which then he's going to develop a new concept, the concept of essence, the concept of a definition. Aristotle gives us our concept of a definition, what a definition is, uh, the concept of an idea that Plato gives us. Uh, these kind of moments where a concept is articulated for the first time and then passed along into the tradition, that's the textual space where Heidegger wants destruction to operate. And the, finally, this is kind of a long-winded answer, but what the positive gain is that by digging down to that experiential ground, which there's just traces of, just the meagerest sort of indications of in the text, Heidegger hopes to find the originating source out of which that concept was uh, generated. And lastly, a source that the concepts don't themselves fully incorporate. So that's being. Um, it's the, 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 the source of the appearing of beings to Aristotle in relation to which Aristotle thinks and generates a concept of being, but that subtending ground for the subtending sort of dynamic event of the emergence and appearance of beings that is being, that's what Aristotle experiences but fails to think. And so that's the place where Heidegger wants to dig in and say, okay, let's destroy Aristotle's text in the sense that we show that those concepts fail to incorporate the ground that they're trying to conceptualize. Um, and then we have a new opportunity to think out of that very ground for a second time. And I think that's what that's the positive moment is finding that ground of beings back in the texts of Aristotle or back in the texts of our tradition, um, and then having the opportunity in that destructive moment to think out of that ground a second time. Yeah, that's 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 very uh, very nicely put. I have many follow ups here. So, <laughs> so it seems, and I would I would agree <clears throat> based on you know how how I've read Heidegger as well i don't think that he's trying to do a type of uh 
another another offshoot of philosophy or he's trying to do i think he's trying to go through all of the tradition uh, just for clarity tradition being anywhere from you know the, the pre-socratics all the way up to present day with heidegger at the time so mm-hmm. you're you're going to get you know hume and hegel and descartes yep. and you know the, you know if you will western i guess you could say tradition yep. um and trying to find yeah that essence because you see like that the destruction piece is, yeah, we're stripping all this. We're going to look at Aristotle. We're going to strip all this away and get to the essence of what he's saying, where being is instantiated in, but not necessarily verbalized. Mm-hmm. And this is where the Husserl kind of phenomenology comes in of where, what is this kind of experience? He's talking about these things or he's talking about definitions or concepts, you know, substance, things like that. But what is the actual uh foundation for that right Mm -hmm. and trying Mm -hmm. and so this is where the positive feature comes in it's not in like a kind of deconstruction postmodern kind of thing where we're just gonna we're just gonna break it all down into parts until we break it all down into parts Mm -hmm. you know there's more of we're gonna basically this kind of essentially the the phenomenological you know uncover or unveil or unmask all of this stuff that we already have talked about for thousands of years in mm-hmm. in in if it's for for the Greeks and everyone after that to try and get at you know what it is there that's residing in being now this isn't a, a way to try and necessarily understand exclusively for Aristotle the author's intent but just what the experience of that being resting within whatever he's trying to describe in whichever text, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's a great point, Xavier. So yeah, I think that's right. That in 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 a strange way, there's a kind of a there's a really challenging ontology of the text at work in um, in Heidegger's destructive method of reading. That is, in a very real way, he he finds. There's a sort of ambivalence in the text. He finds Aristotle thinking, being as it's showing itself in fourth century uh, BCE Greece. You know, so Aristotle's thinking that being, and he's generating the concepts of Western metaphysics that will be passed along and dominate thought uh, subsequently in the yeah. West. Yeah. Um, but in the text. Uh, there is more than what Aristotle is thinking. So there, there, and he, there's even more than what Aristotle is experiencing. Mm. There's indications only for the destructive reader that there's an excess to the being that shows itself to Aristotle. So when being shows itself to Aristotle, it shows itself as the presence of present entities, right? So uh, being is the way in which present entities exist um it's their their mode of being uh so it's exclusively belongs to um the sum total of all beings right that that the being is distributed among all beings and being is their way of existing um and that's how aristotle thinks uh, uh, beings and their being um but heidegger thinks in the aristotelian text there are these indications of an excess to that understanding of being so there's there's more in the text than what the text says for the destructive reader. It's not there for Aristotle. Aristotle isn't thinking that ground. He's responding to that, um, the manner in which being gives itself. And in his response, we can see or we can destructively reveal 
uh, being's withdrawal from mm. that way of showing mm. itself. And in that moment, then we kind of have a, a just a strange notion of the text. The text is both what Aristotle's written to record his thoughtful reception of being and the the appearance of beings, and yet it also has for the destructive reader more than that. Um, and that's what that's what we reveal ultimately as the as the ground. And this is the reason that when Heidegger um, goes back to those early uh, thinkers, he's always interested in. Um, Grundbegriffe, so fundamental or grounding concepts, or Grundprobleme, fundamental or grounding problems. It's that emphasis on the ground out of which the concept emerges, or the ground out of which the problem that he's trying to get to. We we have Aristotle thinking the concepts of Western metaphysics and generating them, but we also have that fundamental underlying ground that is not totally. Um, integrated into the text or or incorporated into the text, but yet we find evidence for it in our destructive reading. So th that all tracks, that makes sense, especially the grounding piece. So is this where, as you said a little bit ago, that this positive destruction Heidegger's doing with, in this case, Aristotle's works, is a type of hermeneutic, right? right. That the 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 the, the as opposed to in the way that uh, Werner Marx and Gadamer say this is a kind of just, well, he's just breaking this stuff up and doing his own thing. No, no, no. Right. Positive destruction in itself is a type of hermeneutic that Heidegger's trying to, not just a different type of hermeneutic, because obviously mm -hmm. Gadamer was also very much, you know, he's, he's yep. in his own right. I mean, fantastic at, at uh, philosophical hermeneutics, but more so of getting doing the positive destruction as a type of hermeneutic to understand mm, the being within the text and the essence that is there as well. Is it, is it this kind of mm, motivation for, for Heidegger on, on, on this piece as a hermeneutic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right, Xavier. So it is a, it is a, a kind of a, a method of interpretation um, that, uh, and the principle of which uh, is that by revealing this tension between the level of concept and the level of the register of concept and the register of experience in the Aristotelian text, by sort of amplifying that tension, we can find um, the, the subtending ground of being, uh, which is the condition for being showing themselves to Aristotle and being thinkable, they're appearing to him, um, but which itself doesn't appear uh, to him and which itself doesn't appear in the text. Um, and, and that's probably a good place to shift to. You'd asked earlier about the kind of phenomenological aspect of uh, Heidegger's project. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think in one way he's he's really thinking Aristotle as himself a kind of proto-phenomenologist. So he, mm. he sees Aristotle as thinking fundamentally phenomenologically. Aristotle, rather than thinking in the mode of modern philosophy from Descartes on, um, which is always trying to bridge the gap between the subject as the site for thinking and objective reality as an independently existing region, which may or may not be connected to the uh, content of my subjective experience. And that project is what dominates all of modern philosophy after Descartes. For Heidegger, Aristotle's engaged in a fundamentally different philosophical project. He's not worrying about the subject-object split. He hasn't encountered Cartesian hyperbolic doubt. He's 
simply thinking appearances. He's beginning with appearances as a absolutely legitimate place to begin um, thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that appears in ordinary everyday experience is true. Um, it just means that it's an okay place to start thinking. Um, you have to then subject those uh, appearances to uh, scrutiny. You have to analyze them. You have to subject them to definition. You have to clarify them. You have to interpret them. Um, but nonetheless, appearances for Aristotle, for Heidegger's Aristotle, are the appearances of what is. Um, and that's the place to begin thinking. And that's what Heidegger believes as well uh, 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 in his own phenomenological study of, say, the, the analytic of Dasein in Being in Time. That's the kind of phenomenological commitment that that Heidegger's own thinking um, exhibits, right? That that, sure. that what is appearing, is the, the, those are the, the appearances of what is, and we need to begin there, and then uh, uh, the project of philosophizing can clarify what it is that's appearing uh, to Dasein, which is beings, and the being that um, is the ground of that appearing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, that that makes a lot of sense. I think I think it will be helpful here. We'll we'll, we'll kind of. I want to get to the still continue with this idea of destruction, and then get into more of the. Uh, uh, more of the weeds here that uh, that you talk about in the book because it's, it's super fascinating. So we can just we'll 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 step back uh, a bit and just give for for listeners. So if listeners have listened to other conversations I've had here, I've I've talked about Heidegger's philosophy a lot here. So from from your perspective though, how do you typically explain uh, the basic features of Heidegger's philosophy? We could do the same with Aristotelian concepts. And then we can kind of shift there. So I'll just I'll set you up here, and then we can you can take as much runway as you want. Sure. But, so with 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 Western continental philosophical thought, you have Husserl, you know Edmund Husserl, who is uh, you know the godfather of phenomenology. Uh, in fact, you know Heidegger took his his place at the rectorship. They had a mm -hmm. great relationship until they didn't for many, many, many uh, terrible reasons, which mm -hmm. I've talked about in other places. Um, so they, you know, Heidegger, I mean, being in time is is dedicated to Edmund Husserl. I mean, it's, I mean, they were very much, you know, kind of master apprentice, whatever, however way you want to mm -hmm. talk about it. And um, so super impacted, influenced, at least, you know, being in time and early Heidegger by Husserl. So phenomenology uh, to the things themselves, right? You know, trying mm -hmm. to just strip away being, um, object subject just trying to get the experience of things um so there's that whole piece of it so in this process uh partly <clears throat> um you know heidegger's you know uh, philosophy develops with the, all these interesting ideas and concepts such as uh dasein you can explain what that is uh uh existence uh mm -hmm. beings uh dasein and being is, is a little bit different um and then also um, we can also talk about Verfallenheit, uh, Verf, Verf, uh, the, mm -hmm. the thrownness, or the fallen, excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, so he has all these concepts about trying to understand at core what it is to be essentially human or to exist and what that experience is at bottom. So he himself will take a lot of time and a lot of you know ink on pages to figure out what that is at it's very essential pieces. And then you start seeing all this other stuff that he brings in from, from the tradition. So just kind of give us the kind of 
Uh, you can also talk about being in the world here and worldhood. So that's some really fascinating stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Just kind of give your you know overview of Heideggerian kinds of thought because that will be helpful then as we keep you know uh, trying to understand what he's describing about the destruction of tradition and some of the Aristotelian texts based in his framework of his philosophy. So so just give us the the overview that you feel is best helpful there. Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so it it, it it's um, it is important to to just mark the fact that when Heidegger's terminology um, uh, moves away from phenomenology to uh, as a as a term to describe his method, which is immediately after being in time in um, nineteen twenty seven, and Heidegger starts using different terminology um, for uh, for his. Uh, um, uh, project. And the best book on that, by the way, is, uh, Will McNeil, my colleague here at DePaul, Will McNeil's book, The Fate of Phenomenology. Um, so nice. for tracing Heidegger's kind of continued commitment, but radicalization and transformation of phenomenology. Is this the, is this the so-called turn in the thirties or whatever yep. it is? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And part of that turn at least is Heidegger's sort of abandoning phenomenology as a, as a, as a, as a uh, term to describe his own method. Um, but then also abandoning the, the discourse uh, of, of phenomenology that we saw in being in time and previous to that and beginning to, to, to pursue philosophy in a kind of a different mode. And that, that, that is simultaneous with his abandoning of the term destruction. Um, after 1927, he, he doesn't talk about destroying the history of being anymore. He talks about um, uh, sort of the, the engaging in the history of being uh, and, 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 and pursues that in various forms. So the, the phenomenology and destruction have a kind of similar fate in, in, in the development of Heidegger's um, career. But so in terms of the way that Heidegger takes Husserlian phenomenology and um, and kind of radicalizes it or changes it fundamentally, I think, you know, one we could focus you, you, you you brought up, Xavier, this 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 uh, insistence on the the role of referring to the what previously would have been called the subject, the human subject or the human being um, in terms of Dasein. So this terminology of Dasein, which is a pre-existing German term that would have Kant would have understood to mean something like existence or something. But um, but for Heidegger, he really wants to unpack it etymologically, that, it, that he wants to understand it as uh, Dasein, being there, right? Da means there, Sein means being. So he really wants to understand that. And that is for him the starting point of philosophizing, like the 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 the, the best description for where ph- philosophical reflection begins is being there for Heidegger. So first of all, that is a replacement for this terminology of subject and object, right? So he wants to take that, what which etymologically would relate back to, right, sort of um, Latin terms subjectum and objectum, um, which are both, right, so subjectum, yectum comes from the verb yakara, which is to throw or cast or put something. And subject or sub, subjectum, subject is the thing that's put under uh, the various properties that a thing possesses. So the the what the, the Greeks would have called the hupokamenon, the underlying thing. And that's the subject. Um, but for 
the philosophy of the modern period, the subject is really the, 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 the thing that's put under all of the contents of thought, right? All the contents of experience or thought, the subject is that race cogitans, that thinking thing that sits beneath all of that and is, possesses all the con con contents of consciousness. And then you have the objectum, which is the thing cast or put over against, ob against the subject. And so that etymology leaves us uh, beginning philosophy from the position of a subject set over against and divided from the objective reality, the independent reality it's trying to think, um, right? And that 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 separation, interestingly, um, that threat of a utter severance between the subjective contents of thought and reality, um, that separation constitutes what the subject and what the object are. It's the threat of that separation that actually make the subject what it is and make the object what it is in terms of an interpretation of reality and interpretation of thinking um, or a way of conceptualizing the project of thinking. So Heidegger says that those presuppositions, the presupposition of that gap, the presupposition of those um, two opposed uh, 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 subjectum and objectum. I want to put that aside, and I because that that isn't actually the content of our experience. You know, when you experience the world, you don't you don't experience yourself as a subjectum, as a subject. The subject doesn't actually appear in experience. When you're looking out your window, when you're thinking about philosophical concepts, when you're having any kind of experience whatsoever, the subject isn't there. It's not in the experience. that It doesn't show up. Um, and so Heidegger thinks, well, why would we presume to be subjects set over against by a threatening severance or gap and objective reality? What does show up is being there. And what he means there is he's sort of emphasizing a kind of a kind of being situated in relation to a surrounding enveloping field for lack of a better term yeah. um and that that does that 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 is true to our experience right before we assume anything about experience the uh, the the reality of any of the features of what we're experiencing we realize that structurally our experience is one where we are situated within this surrounding enveloping field within which things show up or come into existence or pass away or draw our attention or don't. And But that field, that being in relation to that field is fundamental to experience. Mm. And so Heidegger says, let's start there. And that's really what being in the world is because that Fun, the the sort of ordinary everyday term that we would use for that whole encompassing enveloping field in which we find ourselves is the world. That's the world. We're in the world. Um, but what's insisted on when we begin from Dasein rather than a subject-object relation is that when we start thinking, we already have the world. The world's always already appearing to us. That there is available to us. It's shown itself to us. And that's the world we're trying to think and better understand and situate ourselves in and take action within. Um, and so on the one hand, you can think of that way of having the world always already as the world's appearing to you. It's always having shown itself to you as that there within which you're situated. Um, or you can think of yourself as sort of 
stretching out into that world, right? Sort of um, extending out into that world. And that's the notion of the being of Dasein as existence, right? That's from ek, uh, the prefix out, and sistera, the Latin term sistera, which is to stand. So existence for Heidegger is a standing out into the world, kind of stretching out into that world. And Heidegger just means something as easy as when you're existing in the world, you're kind of you're 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 extending out in beyond what's immediately present to you, you know, in all kinds of ways. Like when I when I, I just heard the postman drop off letters at my front door as I'm sitting here, and the fact that I would perceive that person as a postman, right, entailed by that perception of this person right in front of me, is all the other houses in the block that they're delivering to, right? They're, 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 they're not my dedicated postman. I realize that they're a postman that delivers to the whole neighborhood. Also the whole system of the postal service that's supporting them in their activity. Also all the other addresses on the planet where that mail could come from. All of that is entailed in my perception of this person as postman. And so in that way, my, my, my experience is already stretched out to the limits of the entire world. It's already existing, stretching out into the world. And lastly, Xavier, I would just add this, that includes temporally, right? So here we get the temporality of Dasein, that my way of existing isn't to be sort of uh, pinched in this present moment and existing um, uh, in a self-contained, uh, isolated sort of uh, mode, but rather I'm always stretched into the past. I'm emerging out of a past into this moment. I'm, you've mentioned thrownness. I'm thrown into this moment. All what happened to me 10 minutes ago, what happened to me an hour ago, what happened to me yesterday, all the way back to the whole tradition that stretches back. Uh, all that is emerging into me at this moment. And then I'm projecting into the future, right? I'm making plans to do X, Y, and Z. I'm doing this I'm stepping out my front front door because I'm on my way to campus, et cetera. All of that projecting and sort of falling into the present, that that emerging out of a past, that sort of is an existing way of being, right? I'm 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 stretched beyond myself in in, in my presence. So that's the place that Heidegger thinks that's where thinking starts, right? It's not a subject-object relation. It's in that situated being in the world where we begin to to think. Um, and that that that's the the phenomenon. The last thing I would say is just in terms of his inheritance of Husserlian phenomenology, for Brentano and Husserl, the fundamental feature that they initially recognized about consciousness uh, when they're when Husserl was engaging in more sort of philosophical psychology um, was that consciousness is intentional. Right, that that intentionality is a basic structural feature of consciousness. Whether I'm fearing something, I'm always fearing something. If I'm um, hoping, I'm always hoping for something. If I'm even if I'm imagining or fantasizing, I'm imagining something. Um, and so that intending character of consciousness, Husserl said, that belongs to consciousness as as such. So now we can study the objects that consciousness is uh, directing itself toward. And um, we can come to understand them better. For Heidegger, that directionality, that relationality that Husserl and Brentano first recognized and referred to as intentionality, it's not so much an object that consciousness is fundamentally directed to, it's the world. Yeah. The world is what we're directed to and related to in a fundamental structural sense for Heidegger. And that's the important sort of um, 
uh, uh, focus of his kind of phenomenological investigations, I would say. Yeah, it was, you 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 summarize it uh, wonderfully. And for for listeners, you know, many times people, his writing is very, I don't know, you know kind of dry and, and a little yeah. dense, and you know, sure. it's, it's hard it's hard to get all that out of it. But I think if you if you stick with it, you know, he definitely is someone, especially being in time, you need. Uh, you need a couple reads, so you can't, you're not going to yeah. get the you're not going to get the first read. You're not going to get the second read, but slowly you yeah. start to get there. But I think listeners can see the absolute. I mean, just how tremendous that kind of thinking is, and and the sure. the, the grand scale of which he of the project he was trying to do about the the design. I mean, he says that. I believe this is right that the, you know, the world or world, worldhood is is wrapped up in Dasein, right? It's this idea that we get the world we're experiencing in ensconced in how we're in the in the in the world, not mm-hmm. as an outsider or, or an observer, and we're in the world, and so da, you know the world is wrapped up in it, and that's why he spends time in the beginning part. I think it's the first part of being in time talking about the different types. Of world, what we mean by that, right? There's worldhood, um, mm-hmm. there's you know different types of, of of world, and and that's you know I think that's super important because we don't always think of it that way, but we do talk about it that way though. And and you know there's the you know, the world of the of academia or the campus. Right. There's the world right. we live in as a planet. There's the world yeah. of you know whatever, and we kind of talk about that already. But there is different. Uh, I guess you could say ways of extending out or this existing in these types mm-hmm. of worlds, but all of that is 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 within Dasein of us being there. You know, it kind of this um, uh, in in the world as opposed to outside of it or observing it. And mm-hmm. when you so then the directionality aspect of of space and time makes sense because then it's like well. These things then are outside of me. They're happening to me and with me. And so then my understanding of existing or uh, understanding me at bottom mm-hmm. is there's a kind of a directionality within this kind of space and time. Mm-hmm. It's less so of this is outside of me. And that has a very different way of trying to understand, well, not just uh, understanding existence, but understanding then all the potential value you could derive or the things you could do if you're formulating a way of 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 how you are in the world uh in in those kinds of uh in that in that manner of looking at time in that manner mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and um yeah and 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 so obviously he goes on to, to write about other things you know exi- uh, anxiety and death and care and mm-hmm. all these really really wonderful uh concepts that are interesting for us to know um and then and then you can you can derive from that you know personally ways in which you want to understand how one could live their life things like that so there's a lot of I think there's a lot of power in his 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 mind, his philosophical mind for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I, I think that's right, and and I I think you're right, uh, Xavier, about the you know his it, the the critique, for instance, of of a kind of scientific or theoretical um, mode of experience uh, that Heidegger gives us in being in time. The idea that what we sort of imagine is that. Um, we grasp something most completely as what it is when we relate to it in that sort of 
scientific theoretical mode that we 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 stop um, our kind of worldly way of being, our sort of ordinary everyday way of being, and we suspend that, and we just um, focus in on the object and trying to identify the properties that it possesses. And we imagine that that's the way of really cracking that thing open. And now, now we've really gotten it about that. We've, we've, we've studied it scientifically. We've, we've studied it objectively. And now we've, we've really figured it out. Well, we don't have, it's not all the um, kind of hippy dippy associations or fluffy kind of uh, ways of, of relating or caring about something or not. All of that's been suspended and we're just, getting the objective properties of the thing and listing it. And that's that's knowing it as it is. And what Heidegger shows in being in time is that's actually a secondary mode of relating to things. That's 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 what we end up with when we sort of suspend our ordinary project-oriented activities in the world. That's the more fundamental and it's taking that that more fundamental way of looking at or, or interacting with the world and interacting with beings and taking something out of it that's required to to arrive at that scientific understanding or theoretical understanding. And I think that's a really profound um, revelation because in our day and age, we, no one thinks for a second that anything other than science, well, almost no one thinks for a second that anything other than science is the, 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 the right way to get at the truth of things. We think the scientific gaze is the privileged way to arrive at truth, and that seems to have been pretty definitively decided, although it does seem to be called, being called into question by people in, in the last maybe not too long a, a period of time in a way that I, I, for one, didn't expect. But nonetheless, when if you were to ask, you know, how do we get to the truth of the matter, say we're having a government uh uh, uh, investigation into some phenomenon, and we want to determine how the government should respond. We'd, we'd, we, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, pull together a panel of poets uh, or philosophers for that matter. We'd pull together a bunch of social scientists and other scientists, and we'd have them take a look at it, and then they'd give us a scientific report, and then we'd know we'd think, oh, we got to the bottom of it because we approached it scientifically. And Heidegger and Being in Time shows us that that maneuver is actually taking something out of our richer, more immediate, more connected experience of the world. And so it it thrives on a on a reduction rather than a than a, than an increase. Uh, and I think that is a really powerful uh, observation. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree. I mean, it really was, I think, for me, as someone that, you know, it has been within the social sciences with psychology, I I read Being in Time uh, kind of, I guess, completely. I had read bits and pieces of it, but completely in somewhere in grad school. <laughs> what I was in grad school for, for psychology, not obviously philosophy. And I just kind of, and reading other folks where it just kind of, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just like, oh, yeah. all yeah. of this feels not as important as I thought it was. Um, that, 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 that said that said the scientific method is yeah. is is fantastic and we should still keep doing that and you're I not agree. saying that we shouldn't i'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. but i do think that the way i explain this to folks is when you want to do a scientific study you usually start with usually you start with a hypothesis and or you can start with observations and then make a hypothesis and that's somewhere in the mix and i think the thing to question there is from where does the hypotheses arise? Now, mm -hmm. 
again, you could talk about Bayesian priors and all these things. And there's many awesome, mm-hmm. wonderful things about, you know, predictive modeling within computational neuroscience, which to me is just, you know, uh, neuroscience is just catching up to what Heidegger really had thought, you know, a hundred years ago. But yes, I think that there's, it, it's, it's, you're trying to understand where is this coming from? Where, and, and where those questions, those potential hypotheses are coming from based on your uh, input from the world is coming from somewhere. Now, mm-hmm. if you, you want to do the Freudian thing, there's the unconscious, but there's this idea of there's some phenomenological what reason or 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 insight there of I'm going to ask this question about these phenomena in the world mm-hmm. and where and that's going to be different for everybody and that's right. coming from one's own Dasein it's coming from their own experience in the world right mm-hmm. and that's important uh, I think to I think to take seriously I think mm-hmm. because many people will say well you know, this and this, I, you know, I would hypothesize that, you know, there's an increase here. That's because of these, you know, uh, variables and this may or may not correlate. So we'll run the stats and we'll try and figure it out. But that's coming from a type of, whether you recognize it or not, consciously or unconsciously, a philosophical framework in your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and That's important to, to at least examine slowly or more critically of, well, why am I considering this hypothesis and not other ones and why would i want to see the potential correlatory you know aspects between these variables that is a different type of question and Mm -hmm. i think you know so it doesn't mean you have to throw the scientific method out yeah Uh, again you're not saying that i'm not saying that we we must still keep doing that that's very good to do but Mm -hmm. i think we should also place some value on the precursor to many of those things before we get to the the methods and the results and the conclusion, all of the, the precursors for that. And mm-hmm. What do you think yep. about that? Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, with everything, yeah, that you just said, I think there's a, you know, I think the, the, the philosophical justification for that, I mean, it, there is a sort of a common sense uh, uh, way of saying about, yeah, if, 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 if the science is being in any way directed or, constrained or 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 influenced by those precursors then it as as science it has to take those into consideration right in order to be good science it has to um uh take those up and i think the philosophical justification for why those um those influences or 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 sort of pre uh, uh uh decided um directives or what have you um the reason for taking those seriously from a Heideggerian philosophical perspective is that, um, once again, we're not subjects where the content of our subjective experience might be cut off from reality, that it might be just a merely subjective whim or a merely subjective mood or something like that. For Heidegger, that notion of um, uh, uh of 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 the 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 agent of thinking is not a subject it's once again dasein which means that those pre philosophical pre scientific ways that the world has shown itself to you 
Those are real ways that the world um, is revealing itself. That 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 is reality giving itself to you, and you stretching out to reality already with interests and directions and curiosities there and not there. That 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 is a real relationship between the thinking subject or the thinking Dasein and the reality that 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 they're trying to think. It's not a merely subjective, um, pre-scientific uh, um, influence. It's 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 the world showing itself to you, and so that for that reason, it should be taken seriously, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's a real connection to the world. Now, it has to be subject to reflection and philosophical questioning. Course, yeah. We figure out what it means, you know, and and what what the, what we what we're going to take from it philosophically and scientifically but for heidegger it's unquestionable that that is the world showing itself that's that's the where he begins thinking yeah yeah no i fully agree so let's let's do the uh i guess the overview a, a little bit of um kind of the aristotelian uh concepts i mean obviously he he you know he wrote uh, uh in, in in a different style and in a different time but i guess the question here which is kind of going off what you just said is for Aristotle, how do we see Aristotelian concepts still in our world, right? At this pre-reflective, pre-scientific level, you can give the example of um, usia, right? As, mm-hmm. uh, as, as mm-hmm. uh, of substance, yep. and um, and and how much of Aristotle's thought has foundations of contemporary science built into it. Uh, when we were talking earlier, I was um, had a conversation not that long ago about it was more of a historical conversation, but talking about how much um in in the in the in the middle ages i believe it is uh where you you know when you get to folks like you know thomas aquinas where they're using you know greek philosophy and i believe you know uh, aristotle mm-hmm. and there was a big plato renaissance in 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 a certain um I don't know if it's the 11th or 12th century where there was this kind of let's go back to the greeks let's go back to what they're saying and then incorporate it and a mm-hmm. lot of now there's this is a whole other conversation for something else but you do get a lot of that smuggled into certain aspects of modern theology or more modern mm-hmm. theology in this millennium. And, you know, there's people, there's a, there's a, a whole debate about how much of, you know, Christianity is in Western thought or Western thoughts in Christianity and how that mm-hmm. impacts us, even if we aren't religious anymore, et cetera, et cetera, sure. which, you know, there's, there's plenty of conversations about that. But I guess my question here for Aristotle specifically is how do his concepts still impact us in contemporary science? Uh, and in the world today. And again, substance might be a, a good example here if you want to use that. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, you know, I think maybe maybe it's good to uh, identify kind of two registers sure. uh, on which that 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 experience might unfold, right? On the one hand, there is the, the conscious register of, right, sort of, as you as you mentioned, scholasticism, uh, Aquinas, et cetera, returning to the text of Aristotle and really trying to interpret it as, as a pre-revelation, uh, uh, you know, pre-Jesus uh, uh, Christ uh, study of God's creation, which then should, in principle, um, if it's uh, a, a a successful interpretation of the order of reality, it should help us to understand um, uh, how we should behave in, in in this world, even though he didn't have the benefit of the Bible and uh, 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 Jesus' teachings and et cetera. Um, so for Aquinas, there's a reason to specifically go back to Aristotle as kind of the 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 philosopher, the philosophical, the the pagan philosophical articulation of the the structures of the natural world. 
Um, so that's and, and that continued on through modern uh, philosophical period and in, in modern science and et cetera. So that sort of conscious uh, art, uh, explicit returning to uh, the, the ancients. But but even more much more profound than that is the sort of subtending unconscious um always prior manner in which our experience is organized according to fundamental concepts that were invented by Aristotle um, and and that and that were then developed and that we receive and that are the structures of intelligibility that are always already operative in the way we experience the world, the way the world shows itself to us. This this sort of traditional influence that's beneath the level of our subjective uh, or our, 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 our reflection, right? So even if we don't know who Aristotle is or we don't yeah. know who where these concepts come from, they're already there at work organizing our experience. And so I do this thought experiment with my students a lot of times. I'll say, um, okay, so try to... Um, uh, Let's let's do this uh, experiment. Let's um, without trying to be reflective or clever or interesting or 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 philosophical. Let's just um, uh, sort of suspend that. But let's try to make a list of what in this room has being. What is in this room? Um, and just start making a list. And we'll see. You know what? They'll give them a couple of minutes, and they'll start making a list of things, you know, and inevitably they come up with things like this table, this chair, maybe that person, uh, maybe the blackboard that, and the world of their experience fundamentally uh, uh, organizes itself into Aristotelian substances. Um, you know, scientifically we might think, well, that's just a kind of epiphenomenal uh, uh, structure of the world. Really what's structuring the world is relations of energy or relations of subatomic particles and then atomic uh, particles and etc that's really what the world is made of but we don't experience the world in those <laughs> in those terms we don't experience the world as a field of energy we don't experience the world as um a a, a, a set of relations Maybe we could, where relations are primary and substances result from those relations. We might be able to imagine experiencing the world that way. And maybe somebody who is not in, as thoroughly influenced by the tradition of Aristotelian ontology or metaphysics that we inherit, maybe they do experience the world in fundamentally different ways. But for us, we experience the world as a collection of Aristotelian uzii or substances. And for Arist Aristotle, he's the one that came up with the idea after Plato, right? He's Plato's student. Plato says the things that are real can't be these changing, shifting material things that populate this world that we immediately experience. What is most of all must be the ideas, right? These eternal, timeless, these unchanging, perfect, uh, intelligible uh, entities. They are real, and this world is just a pale, imperfect uh, um, uh, imitation of that one, right? But Aristotle says, no, 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 that's not right. The 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 world that's most real uh, are the world of individual substances. That is. Uh, a hylomorphic compound, a compound of a certain amount of suited material in a form like the form of a horse or the form of a human or the form of a tree. And those things are what's most real are those hylomorphic compounds he calls substances. 
Um, and that's the world that we still experience, right? That, that that's he he was, and I'm not saying that Aristotle made the Western tradition be a substance ontology grounded tradition. I'm saying as the world was showing itself in fourth century Greece as a collection of substances, Aristotle was the best, clearest sighted, uh, most articulate um, recorder of that mode of appearing. And so that's an example of the way that the world continues to fundamentally organize itself according to Aristotelian principles. And then it's out of that experience that scientists think. No, no matter if, you know, Arist Aristotelian principles have been rejected, we don't any longer believe in a teleological view of nature. We've rejected the idea of an infinite time, right? So uh, we have all these other anti-Arist, we've even rejected Aristotelian logic with its replacement in the 19th, late 19th century with a, a mathematical logic. All of that may be the case, but our fundamental experience is organized into by substance ontology. And when a scientist begins their thinking, they think from out of that experience into the scientific principles that they they adhere to when they're pro 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 proceeding in their physics, uh, study in physics, study in psychology, study in any other uh, scientific endeavor. It's, it's ultimately grounded in the individual scientists' um, lived experience of the world organized by Aristotelian concepts. Yeah, I think it's, again, I mean, he's, you know, tremendous for how he lives on in our, in our world in many ways of how we think about just the very basic fundamentals. I've mentioned this at different points before, but um, if you've never seen Toy Story Four, you definitely should. Uh, <laughs> I haven't. No, I. <laughs> it's 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 great because it talks about a lot of these uh, big concepts in the movie. There's uh, a, a child that is at a daycare and and has to make uh, make a make a make something, mm. make something. So there's uh, <laughs> there, there's a uh, president hand and there's readiness to hand, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. and she she takes a a spork, right? <laughs> right. And you know puts other materials, other substances, right? And you know gives him, you know, I think uh, what is it? Um, uh, not toothpicks. Um, uh, the things that you have for uh, like popsicles, they're wooden. Oh yeah, uh, like a popsicle stick. The popsicles, yeah, and those yeah. are the two feet, and like the kind of red things for the arms and the googly eyes on the thing, and whatever. And all of a sudden, it becomes alive, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And it talks and it walks, mm -hmm. but it's trying to understand what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's very funny, right? It's, you know, the the character's name becomes uh, um, Forky, I think is the name. Mm -hmm. character. And he has these big conversations with Woody about what it means to be and what it means right. to exist. And he keeps saying, well, I'm trash, right? Because yeah. he was found in the trash. It's, it's right. very funny. In the, yeah. But if you really set outside the, the, the film and the contours of the film, it's asking really big questions about what it means to be, what it means sure. to exist, how we're yeah. made of substances, how we aren't. You know, what, what is that like and how is that different of existing? Mm -hmm. um and so anyways it's a, it's a very yeah. i'm sure you could pull and play with a lot of ways of teaching concepts i mean it is a very like clear like yeah 
you know, present at hand kind of materials. Yeah. It's very, very, at least for me, yeah. it's very, very obvious. Um, yeah. It's really, really interesting. So, but anyways, this well, idea of substances is like, it's, it's, it lives on with, with, with many things sure. which we're, we're doing. Yeah. And Aristotle would have a way of thinking about that, right? He, he, he distinguishes uh, the mode of being of what, uh, what is often translated as a heap sort of just a, a random collection of things stuck together mm -hmm. uh, versus a substance. And he wants to say, yeah. you know, so a pile of leaves is not a, not a substance, right? The pile is not a substance. Each individual leaf might be a substance. Um, and the way he would answer that question is, well, the substance has a function, yeah. whereas the pile of leaves doesn't have a function. So yeah. Yeah, Forky, Forky probably would have some kind of a function. Maybe he's a member of the community. Does things that's, that's, that's what happens is much right. like you know Buzz and Woody were toys. Right. They were toys for a person, and they right. and 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 their continuous story is, well, like toy. The the powerful message of Toy Story three is, if you, it, what does it mean to 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 be to be to belong to somebody, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and some attachment there, even with for 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 um, uh, what's the kid's name? I don't remember the kid's name in Toy Story, but the kid that uh, has the the inanimate objects that he plays with, anything like that. But then the question becomes, well, what's my, what is it worth existing if it's not for this person? Could I exist for other children and in mm -hmm. other ways? Mm -hmm. And what's my purpose and meaning? And trying to find that. Um, mm -hmm. There's a big existential question in the third film. But then they go all the way back to like, what does it mean to actually be a toy? Yeah. Because if you're not a toy, you're just literally trash that was <laughs> thrown together and then you make it. Right. What, what does it mean to really be a toy? Right. What does it yeah. mean to be a toy for someone? Sure. Right? Yeah. But anyways, interesting. this interesting. is when I, when I, when I, when I go and see uh, uh, <laughs> movies with my daughter, this is what's going on in my head, right? She's just loving the movie, but this is what, <laughs> this is what I'm thinking yeah. about. I'm right. thinking about ontology and substance. <laughs> That's um, interesting. Yeah. That was a great film, Dad. Yeah, it really was a great film. <laughs> Let me tell you why I think it's a great film. Like, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, no. Not that again. <laughs> That's right. Um, so let's. I want to ask you about concepts. Uh, mm -hmm. Before before we get to, to concepts, let's take – I guess this will be – you mentioned it in the book, but it, so I will be important, but maybe it'll register in this conversation as a type of footnote. So I, I obviously want to ask you is you mentioned uh, Nietzsche's threefold critical approach to to, to history, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is really interesting. Uh, I can't remember where you pulled this. If this was from the Untimely Meditations or if this was mm -hmm. from yep. Birth of Tragedy yep. or both, I think it's Untimely Meditations, though, right? Yep, Second Untimely Meditation. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so good, so good. Um, how does his kind of threefold critical approach? you know, kind of connect or overlap, or I guess I should say, how does Heidegger's approach overlap with Nietzsche's threefold critical approach from looking at a way of looking at, uh, of history and tradition. And they both mm -hmm. were very much, um, interested in this. And mm -hmm. so where do you see the overlap or maybe the divergence of, of their kind of work here on this? Yeah, no, I, I do see a lot of, uh, uh, of, of, um, uh, overlap in a, in a kind of a shared, uh, shared, sensibility um and and heidegger himself mentions the second untimely meditation and being in time in in the in the discussion of history and um um and uh um historicity of dasein so it it he he acknowledges this 
influence, I guess you could say, of, of Nietzsche on this point. Um, and for me, that, that second untimely meditation, um, or I should say unfashionable observation, because that's the Stanford University Press uh, oh, title. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. I actually like that yeah. one better. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Unfashionable observations. That's yeah, great. So that's I, great. <laughs> so actually, as a, as a company person, I should, I should be I should <laughs> using that's that great. translation. <laughs> but anyway, the... Uh, yeah, so, you know, I and that's Nietzsche's 1873, very early articulation of how we should relate to our past, right? Um, and that will eventually, by 1887, become genealogy and on the genealogy of morality. That, 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 that same method will kind of get worked out and genealogy will be a kind of simultaneously monumental antiquarian and critical method. Those are the three kind of ways of doing history that Nietzsche kind of wraps up into a whole or into a serial whole, really, that depending on your time period, you might more need the monumental engagement with history. You might more need the antiquarian engagement with history. You might more need the critical engagement with history. But all of them are kind of necessary as correctives for one another mm. because they they become too dominant uh, individually. Um, but at any rate, so that kind of complex that Nietzsche lays out there is is, is coming out of his reaction to, um, again, historicism in 19th century Germany and the, the newfound sort of impulse. It's sort of a sort of a, a symptom in of what Nietzsche will eventually call the 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 death of God. That is, um or it's a phase in the death of God or the nihilistic kind of consequences of, of the death of God insofar as what Nietzsche is diagnosing there is sort of the loss of a fundamental ground for our values and our knowledge and our, even, even how we understand being, uh, how we understand reality. And we used to have God serving that, that, uh, Right. Uh, that function, grounding all of our moral values, grounding our capacity to know the world and, and being the creator, grounding what things are. Um, so we had that ground. Uh, and as we lost faith in that uh, that thing's capacity to serve that grounding function, then with the Enlightenment, we switched to reason. Now, reason could function as that ground. It could ground our values if we just, and everyone has access to it. So it'd be this universally available ground that we could use to ground our values and our ability to know things. And once again, the rational explanation of the world is the, the reason for its existing, right? The, the, the principle of sufficient reason, everything is because it's, it, 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 it has a, pr pr a sufficient reason to be, and therefore rationality is sort of the, the ground for reality itself. And then as that sort of moves out of, uh, uh, um, it becomes less tenable, Read the Enlightenment association with reason, now history steps in and history becomes that fundamental principle that is, well, okay, maybe the world isn't the creation of God and we can't depend on it. Maybe it's not even fundamentally rational and reason can't give us action. But maybe if we know precisely enough and really more importantly for Nietzsche, scientifically enough, the individual elements of any given historical context, we can explain why anything happened. And therefore, we can take that and explain why things should happen in our historical context. That is, we can understand the the, the causes and, and, and influences of any historical event, including our own. 
And then we can sort of act accordingly. We can understand the world. We understand why the world is the way it is. And we can we can establish our values basically based on history. And that's the sort of the project of 19th century historicism. And Nietzsche finds that to be toxic. He thinks the the scientific study of history is, is problematic because what it's committed to is knowing everything exhaustively about history without remainder. That is just knowing everything about history, the, the, the entire sort of every single aspect of history, every, every event that's happened, every minute element of it has to be scientifically studied. And if we do that, we'll arrive at an understanding that will be, um, be positive for us. And so, as Nietzsche says, you know, and this is the case for many of his texts, the title of the of the text is really the kind of skeleton key for the whole thing, right? So, Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music is the same way, Human All Too Human, Daybreak or Dawn, um, Gay Science is the same way. Same, same thing with the second Untimely Meditation, um, which is um, on the liability uh, or on the utility and liability of history for life. And that for life thing is really important because his idea is this scientific study of the past is suffocating for our life force because it eclipses the necessity of a future of 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 life's developing into the future and creatively producing new life forms and etc and that sort of obsessive uh, study of the past is having a toxic effect on his historical present and on the force of life so i think that notion of life in the second unfashionable uh, observation is just one term that he uses for that underlying dynamic creative force uh, or complex of forces. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere in Birth Tragedy, he'll call it the contentious relationship between the Dionysian and the Apollonian. Mm -hmm. In Philosophy in the Tragic Age, he'll call it just nature. Um, and then later on, he'll call it the will or will to power. Yeah. And that's that surging source of creativity that can sort of be expressed in a way that's genuine and proper to itself or can be suffocated. Yeah. And um, for him, the threefold relationship to history is a way that takes that past and most puts it in the service of life. And I think that's something parallel to what Heidegger's destruction is doing, digging down to that source out of which Aristotle's concepts were created and allowing us to think now out of that source in a way that was sort of obscured for us previously. So I think they're very parallel in that sense. Yeah, I think I've always seen Nietzsche's philosophy as a philosophy of life. How, how, mm -hmm. how do we have yeah. life sincerely and accurately yeah. and, and philosophically, but, but maybe more... Uh, even more specific for 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 Heidegger is this idea of you know of of of, uh, of being and how we're able mm -hmm. to understand that within the world. So that makes yeah. uh, a lot of sense on on that overlap. So I guess the the question I want to lead into here is about concepts. So um, how are we to think of concepts? I guess generally, what it is, uh, definitions. How do we understand a concept in its conceptuality um and how do these all play a play a part we can start with that and then kind of break it down a little bit of what what aristotle's doing with some of these uh concepts sure yeah thanks savior so um yeah as i mentioned earlier the 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 
focus for Heidegger in these destructive readings of Aristotle's text uh, are these are, are always these Grundbegriffe or these grounding concepts, these ground concepts. Um, and uh, he's constantly trying to um, uh, sort of dig into the 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 foundation uh the experiential sort of soil out of which aristotle's pulling those those concepts um and interesting i guess is that uh to me at least is that um later on heidegger will uh really sort of engage more in a in a critique of conceptual thinking as such so in 1951's um, What is Called Thinking, for instance, Aristotle, or sorry, Heidegger, um, he, he identifies or he relates, first of all, uh, begriffe or concepts to the verb greifen, to, to grasp or to seize, to lay hold of. And he basically there says conceptual thinking um, is something that is limited to um the thinking of present entities because it sets out uh, uh using concepts meaning um using uh, uh ideas that are proper only to things that are um fully and exhaustively graspable things that are fully and exhaustively manageable or masterable and so conceptual thinking has this sort of fundamentally exhaustively grasping and mastering character and there heidegger says you know is encouraging us to imagine a kind of thinking that sort of leaves concepts behind uh, he and he that it's it's in it's in the, that uh, so in that lecture course conceptual thinking is kind of the target of the of the Heideggerian critique as such in these earlier lecture lecture courses from the twenties I think there's something more interesting going on um, which is that there Heidegger seems to suggest that thinking with concepts if it's genuine that is if it's genuine to the conceptuality of the concept if it incorporates this idea of the begrifflichkeit of the of the begriff the conceptuality of the concept um then it uh then it 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 can be uh, a sort of it, it can think in a post metaphysical way we can bring concepts into this post metaphysical project and we can think with concepts, but we have to think our concepts differently. Mm. We have to think them, he says they're in their begrifflichkeit. And what that essentially means is, is that we can't think them as reducible to an essential definition any longer. So say the concept of the human, from Aristotle, we have the well-known uh, definition of the human as the animal with logos or reason or language, right? So... If we imagine concepts to be definable in that mode, then what we think is that the definition is a logical unit that can replace this concept, human, um, in any logical relations. We can put it into a proposition, we can, uh, and the proposition will still be true um, if, uh, if, 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 if the the definition for the human replaces the concept human so if we instead of human all human beings are mortal we say all rational animals are mortal if that 
was true of humans and it's now true with the, it will be true of 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 the proposition rearticulated using the definition all rational animals are human so we think there of definitions as replacements for concepts in logical relations that are exhaustively um, applicable right they they exhaustively replace the concept but Heidegger wants to think them in their conceptuality, which means to incorporate a kind of verbal notion of, of the concept. That is, try to think of the concept human as a conceiving, that is, uh, uh, a confrontation with a bunch of entities that seem to call forth the term human and a sort of relating to all of those entities and then a bringing them together identifying what's like about them and articulating that likeness in the concept human being. But now our notion of the concept human being has within it that confront that confrontation with preconceptual experience. Now it's a it's 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 an invention, right? It's it's emerging out of experience that is not yet organized according to the concept and it is organizing that experience into the concept now it's a creation and so it's not totally disconnected from reality it's not a, it's not a mere fiction right. but it is a, it is a, a creation based on experience that is preconceptual that's not yet organized according to this concept that we're just coming up with so that's the main idea i think in heidegger's reading of aristotle that if conceptual thinking can begin to understand its concepts as these kind of accomplishments, as, as creations in the face of experience that is in excess of the concept, then that kind of thinking can go forward and it won't be the mastering, um, exhaustively grasping kind of thinking that he critiques later on in what is called thinking. Yeah, so let me see, let me see if I can uh, build on this. So he taking this idea of like human, if you have this definition, what you're explaining here is that he's basically saying that you want to get the whole gestalt of what that is. And from mm -hmm. that gestalt, you then want to extrapolate the kernel of uh, the, the, the central central idea you create out of the gestalt mm -hmm. of the concept that you're deriving from something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think that's, I think you're, I think you're, you're onto something there. Uh, Xavier. And, and the only thing I would add to that is just that in, in thinking concepts in this new way, we would sort of hold them as necessarily incomplete. That is, uh -huh. they would be concepts of something this this field of 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 the, the the concept human would belong to and mean to stand in for the sum total of all human beings that ever have been are or will be but it would sort of in a sense recognize the the grounds out of which those human beings appear as humans mm -hmm. and which are necessarily not incorporated into the concept mm -hmm. so now we would have this concept as something that helps us organize our experience at the same time as the way we have it marks the excess of that experience in a way that it doesn't now. Now we think, well, we've got the concept human. Now that could utterly and completely replace the whole sum, the whole set of all particular humans. 
so this is kind of coming on the whole Heraclitus idea of becoming, right? Mm -hmm. That you have the concept, but it's not a static thing. So even if something that we understand conceptually or how we're defining it, we still have to leave space to say, how is this evolving or how could we continue to uh, redefine or update this in some way by taking the, the conglomerate ideas of what that concept is and we still try to say okay we we have to budget space for that it's something like that yeah yeah no and i think you're really onto something with the 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 heraclitus reference there xavier because and i think this is actually where nietzsche might be even more interesting than heidegger on on this notion of the concept nietzsche says in philosophy of the tragic age of the greeks that philosophy is concept creation which is exactly the same definition that heidegger gives in his readings of aristotle philosophy is concept creation um creation specifically right yeah. uh and um uh, you know, and that's the same definition that Deleuze and Guattari give in what is called philosophy, right? That's that's concept creation. Uh, so, but what Nietzsche sort of pulls out of those early Greek thinkers and Heraclitus in particular is if concepts are going to think this condition of becoming, Heidegger's got it right that they have to record their emergence out of a, a ground that they don't completely exhaustively um, incorporate right they 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 conceptualize something that they necessarily sort of eclipse potentially uh and do not um fully uh, uh include uh and that 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 indication of a insufficiency now belongs to our concepts in a way that it didn't in the metaphysical mode of thinking concepts for metaphysics whatever's lost in not thinking the particularities of the particular humans, right? That this one's got a mustache and that one's uh, shorter than this one or what, that doesn't really matter. None of it's significant to thinking of the human being. So all the particular grounds or the the particular ontological grounds on the basis of which humans present themselves, none of that's really important. We can replace all the whole set of humans with the concept human exhaustively, and we don't lose anything of any significance for metaphysics. Now our concept records its emergence out of that, 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 that unconceptualized, preconceptual and ultimately unconceptualized ground. What Nietzsche would add to that is, and this is coming out of that Heraclitian notion of becoming, we also have to hold our concept in a way that includes its own eventual, um, destruction, that that concept is an emergence. It comes out of this dynamic ground. We articulate that dynamic ground in a way that helps conceptually. It, it conceptualizes something about it. But then we we embrace the idea that that has to be replaced by a new, a new created concept. And that goes for our values as well. That's why Nietzsche wants to sort of think of this transvaluation of values, and you could say transconceptualization of concepts as an ongoing process. For him, that's the way we should be thinking and holding our values, holding our concepts and holding our values is in that 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 way that always includes the the fact of their emergence out of grounds that they don't fully incorporate and their necessary return to that uh, that ground or their necessary destruction. Yeah, yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. Um I can feel all of my 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 follow-up questions on, on the Nietzsche principle, but I'll I'll save that for our later conversation. So sure. <laughs> um so now, I have this question here, and you can go as deep as you want. Um, if, if, I, if, I, if I get lost, I'll tell you, or if you don't want to go too deep, that's mm-hmm. fine. But 
in the book, you talk about this idea of perception with memory and with experience, right? And how what Aristotle is doing there. Now, I, I would imagine that maybe some of this is what we see as long-term memory. The reason I'm asking this is because I mentioned it earlier, but in much of uh, neuroscience generally and neuropsychology or cognitive science um, or computational neuroscience, there is this – I have so, – there's some really good folks out there that are trying to – basically have their foot into a foot in both worlds i guess of philosophy and kind of neuroscience which i really admire now what kind of philosophy is it is it more the analytic tradition or what have you maybe i don't know but i at least respect it but i think having one you know both feet in one camp or, or whatever than than others is is a disservice so the reason i ask this is that many people will look at perception um, and how we understand our, our our experience and our perception to make claims from a, a neuroscientific standpoint of what is reality, what is real, um, you know, how do we understand maybe the neuroscientific aspects or the neurological aspects of of memory or when there are disorders of memory, et cetera. But that perception is powerful, but it's not only the thing that's there, but how do we understand our reality with us you know and you can kind of upload consciousness here to this part of the mm -hmm. equation as well and that becomes even more messy so i guess in talking about these ideas of concepts and we've mentioned at different points here where does the aristotelian aspect of perception and memory and experience connect with this idea of, of concept and, and you can go as, mm -hmm. as as deep you want it's, it's been on my mind recently Especially talking to folks that are, you know, doing predictive processing stuff, or, or how we, you know, kind of construct our, our world around us, and I want to root it in these kind of philosophical, uh, the continental tradition of what Aristotle was up to and what he thought about it, and where Heidegger goes with it, and, and any other thoughts you may you may mm -hmm. have on it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, Heide, I'm sorry. Aristotle does offer um, in two places. So in um, Posterior Analytics two nineteen and in uh, metaphysics alpha he offers a kind of um sort of a hierarchy of um uh of what we might refer to as sort of mental faculties um uh -huh. so he talks about and he sees it as a kind of a you know hierarchy of beings as well so that some beings only have the lower level faculties while certain beings and humans only have the very highest uh, level level uh, faculty but um but in that conversation he talks about the way that we um the way that we develop uh or he speculates about the way that we develop something like techne which he refers to as an an art or a craft right um a productive knowledge basically a way of knowing things that is that produces things or um Empiria, which is more like a kind of scientific understanding, a knowledge for its own sake. Yep. And so he's kind of trying to figure out where those come from and how we build basically an understanding of the world, either that we can use to produce things or that we just know and understand things in a quasi-scientific way. And he says, well, you know, every so every 
animal has some kind of perception. Plants uh, have only the nutritive faculties and growth uh, that their souls you know, are capable of. They don't have perception for Aristotle. Animals are the kind the, the kind of living thing that has perceptions. There you get the genus and the species. Um, and then he says some of those animals that have perception have also memory. So they seem to be able to uh, retain these perceptions over time. Um, and interestingly, he describes that process of retention as uh, he uses the um, the image of, a, of a, a, a military force retreating on the battlefield. So they're all running from an, uh, uh, an opposing military force. And he says every once in a while in, in a retreat, one soldier will stop and turn and fight and stay where they are. And that lone soldier will then attract the other soldiers and then they'll stay and hold that position. Uh, and he says, that's what memory is like, where when you're perceiving things, everything that you're perceiving is just being sort of flooded away, washed away by the next perception. Um, and it's only when one of them sticks that then the next time a like perception uh, passes through, it can stick and stand with that one. So you start to build memories on the principle of like uh, is attracted to like, basically. Mm -hmm. And then you collect your memories that way. It's not just a random collection of sort of a content of experience. For Aristotle, it's um, organized according to likeness. That's how memory works. It sort of holds like things together. Um, we would and, we would call this a type of associative learning or associative yeah, memory where we're linking sure. it. We remember things better by linking it to something we've already had as opposed to just kind of wrote, you know, going over it right. over and over. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So that's, and, and so, and this is in the context of something like, um, uh, you know, learning a skill or learning to understand something that he's talking about memory. So it's hard to know exactly how we would imagine memory works not in that context. So just the way memory works and just living your life. Um, but here, what he says is, well, if you have memory, then you can develop what he calls experience, empirica, it's where we get the word empirical. Um, and that is a kind of collection of memories where you can um it's basically like a familiarity with that thing mm -hmm. so he'll he'll distinguish someone that's maybe like a healer from a doctor and a healer has enough recollection of say the the symptoms of scurvy mm -hmm. so that they can when another they have a familiarity with scurvy and they know that when they've given scurvy suffering people citrus fruits they've improved so when someone presents themselves with the symptoms of scurvy then they know they can they can offer citrus fruit and it will cure the condition but they don't know why they know that yeah. This is scurvy, but they don't know why scurvy happens, so they don't know why the citrus works uh, to cure it. But a doctor would know the why. So basically, memory for him is a kind of potential for either just familiarity, which is kind of a lower level, or you could move to the next level of a kind of technical understanding, uh, producing healthy patients, or a theoretical understanding, just understanding uh, health in general. And so for Aristotle... That's the way memory works, uh, uh, collecting perceptions uh, according to the principle of like is attracted to like, and then it serves in 
understanding the world and um, in, in, in the best case scenario. So when you have these perceptions and you're connecting them and we have these memories that are creating the type of experience, um, you know, I guess long-term, are we then building concepts out of that where we're saying, okay, so now I know what this, I'm giving this a category or I'm giving mm-hmm. this a kind of domain. Is yeah. it something along those lines? So it, it, yeah. is a, it is a type of hierarchical kind of, you know, not an A plus B plus C kind of thing, mm-hmm. but there is a kind of uh, organized network, if you will, in, yeah. in, in Aristotle's mind. Uh, and then that's how we get to concepts. Is it something yeah. like this? Yeah, exactly. So that that thing that was alike in all of those soldiers, that likeness, we would. So for Aristotle, um, he he has the he he develops the distinction between the universal and the particular, um, or what will become the universal and the particular in the Middle Ages. For him, uh, the terminology is interestingly different. He calls the particular ta-katekaston, which means the thing according to each. So you're looking at a group of, say, things that present themselves as human beings, um, and the particulars are humans when seen or perceived according to each one. So they're all they, you're, you're seeing them each in their particular differences. The universal is the ta-katalu, which is the thing according to the whole. So when you look at them all together, what's the thing that they all share? What's the one thing that unifies all of them that's the same in every case? Not all their particular differences, but what's the the humanity that they all share? That's your concept. So you draw it out of that collection of individual things. Now, what Heidegger thinks is that way of creating a concept, Aristotle um, uh, uh, passes on to the tradition. What he really did is more along the lines of having the world present itself to him, have being as the kind of dynamic source and event of uh, the unfolding of beings into appearance. He received that in experience and out of which he created concepts. Um, And so when Heidegger digs back into the text destructively, he tries to find that subtending ground that wasn't fully incorporated into those concepts that Aristotle passed along. But yeah, that's how Aristotle thinks of himself as creating concepts, as collecting those particulars, viewing them either either individually or as a whole. And when you view all those particulars as a whole, you can draw, you can abstract the concept from all of the, the, the shared universal from all of those particulars. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially as the looking at how Heidegger sees it. You know, again, I, I think you know listeners will be able to hear that. I mean, Aristotle was, I mean, I mean, brilliant. It seems like an understatement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. He's, he's, he was so so tremendous as a thinker. Yeah, um, and and you know, this is pre-modern science in some ways. So mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 incredible. This I might agree. be a good a good place to kind of go over. Um, the three tactics of the destructive method of reading Aristotle. Sure. So uh, the three are, if I, if I have it right, a shift from uh, a, a static kind of definition to to the beings, the, you know, the concepts mean in the mode of being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from specific vocabulary to terminological choices on the basis of experience of being, and then what is clarifying and more intelligible as a concept and what is not. So just just talk about how, what what is 
Heidegger doing here with this destructive method of, of reading Aristotle? Give sure. us the full destruction here. What's the full <laughs> Heideggerian destruction? destruction? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So these are the kind of the, the 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 sort of tactics that he's using in reading the Aristotelian text and focusing in on different concepts. And I give these three kind of examples or case studies of destroyed concepts of. Um, uh, Uzia, uh, the substance and, uh, the, um, the, um, zoon, uh, echon logon or the animal having reason or, or, or language and dunamis or potency. Um, and in each case, he follows these, these sort of three steps that you mentioned, Xavier. And he, so he sort of suggests these same three steps in the very schematic um, description of the destructive project that he lays out in the introduction to being in time in paragraph six. Um, but there, right, that's going to be the second half of being in time, which is never written. Yeah. And it's just a very sort of schematic indication that this is the destruction we'll have to engage in. And we'll read Kant, and then we'll read Descartes, and then we'll read Aristotle, and we'll, we'll, we'll give a destruction of the tradition. And that will sort of allow us to think being, to raise the question of being for the first time, which we've forgotten since Aristotle and Plato. Um, we just accepted their interpretation of being, and it's dominated our thinking. It's organized the field of inquiry for the whole history of Western metaphysics from Aristotle to um, Heidegger, according to Heidegger. <laughs> uh, but the um, the method then has these three basic steps. And one, the first one is shifting the focus from the definitions of concepts that Aristotle gives or sort of the philosophical positions that he arrives at and shifting it back to the moment of inquiry, right? The place where he's raising his questions. And Aristotle, this is an interesting observation that Heidegger makes. Aristotle's, because of his scholastic interpretation, often thought of as a kind of system builder, right? And, and also because his texts are so, he's sort of inventing philosophical disciplines. In Plato, we don't have a metaphysics, a physics, an epistemology, uh, a logic, uh, an ethics, a politics. You know, we those things are just sort of all mixed together. And Aristotle is the one that says, no, 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 we need these sub areas of study and we're going to dedicate ourselves to those questions and which ones are sciences and really and which ones aren't. So he gets this repetition, this reputation, and according to his later, um, his later reception as a kind of systematic thinker. But when you actually read the text of Aristotle, it's very um, open. There's Aristotle's constantly striving for a definition, um, offering the definition of a concept, giving an argument for an interpretation. And then one of Aristotle's most powerful philosophical, to my mind, philosophical turns of phrase is, let's begin again. That mm -hmm. happens over and over again in the Aristotelian text. Let's begin again. So then we go back to the original phenomena, the, the moment where the question of what is an Uzia or what is a human or what is a, a, a dunamis presents itself. And then we re sort of negotiate that initial appearing. So Heidegger's first step in the destruction is to go back to those moments. Let's focus in on those moments where he's initially confronting the appearance of beings. And out of that, he's going to create a concept, but he'll constantly return to that ground, that experiential ground. So the first step is, instead of proceeding the way we would normally in the history of philosophy, which is what are the thinker's ultimate positions? Let's figure out what Aristotelianism is. 
And we would say, well, he's he's an empiricist because he's interested in, uh, you know, uh, uh, concrete experience. Uh, he's not an idealist like his mentor Plato. Um, he's a, uh, you know, uh, uh, this kind of thinker, that kind of thinker. We would assemble all the positions that he arrives at. Um, which are the final moments in his thinking. And Heidegger says, no, 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 for destructive reading, you shift your focus away from those arrived at positions and you focus on those initial encounters with beings that provoke the question. So what is it that presents itself to Aristotle that initially provokes the question, what is a, a dunamis or a potency? What is a human? What is a, let's focus on those moments. Um and then he does two things, basically. He says, well, let's look at the terminology that he assembles uh, to start to make evident that an immediate experience. And the big question he wants to ask, Heidegger wants to ask is, is the terminology inherited from earlier thinkers or does it come out of the demands of the experience itself? So, for instance, we would ask, when Aristotle looks at a substance, why does he use the term ADOS? for the forming element, the element that gives form or organizes the material being that's presenting itself. Well, probably because Plato used the term ADOS to describe the eternal ideas that he thought were the ultimate realities. And so that's an inherited philosophical term that Aristotle deploys at this moment in trying to make sense of his um, immediate experience. And for Heidegger, that's suspect, right? Because it's, it's not... It's not necessarily, it might be, but it isn't necessarily being required by the content of the experience itself. And then the third, or the second step, uh, once we've shifted our focus and sort of focused on the terminology and where it comes from, um, then we look at what is it precisely that Aristotle counts as increased intelligibility, right? So we have an experience, it's question worthy, that's why we're still talking about it, while we're inquiring into it, we experience it as withholding itself from our understanding, what does Aristotle think counts as an increase in intelligibility? What is it that, how does he determine that um, this thing is becoming more intelligible? What exactly are the criteria according to which he says, this helps us make this more intelligible than it was when it initially presented itself to questioning? And those are the three steps. Yeah, I think it's, it's, well, in in seeing that, right, you can see, well, if going back to the beginning, if Heidegger was doing a positive destruction, he wasn't doing something different. He was trying right. to take what was already there with Aristotle's uh, framework and saying, yep. well, how do we how do we extract from the foundation of being what is, you know, what is in there, right? right. And using yep. it this way, you know, you could see makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. No, you're totally right, Xavier. And, and I think I think that's that's exactly right. That that what Heidegger is really revealing um, or disclosing in the Aristotelian text um, is there in a sense, but it's kind of in an unexpected place. It's not at the conclusion of the Aristotelian philosophical study. It's the thing that was initially provoking that study, the initially yeah. question-worthy experience of the world. In that, there's an indication of being that's in excess of metaphysics. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so where where does his notion of you talk about it? His notion of phenomenological reduction, construction, and destruction. 
all tie in together to understand Aristotelian texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he in 1927, so this is the same year that um, the Being in Time comes out, uh, uh, Heidegger gives a lecture course called The Basic Problems of Phenomenology. And in that text, he sort of presents a really fascinating complication, I guess we could say, of Husserl's phenomenological method. Husserl had introduced the reduction, the epoche, where uh, basically we begin with our natural attitude, our natural way of perceiving the world. And in, in that natural attitude, when something presents itself to consciousness, I've got a representation of, say, a tree that I'm perceiving. My natural attitude is to assume that this object of consciousness that I recognize as a tree is uh, arises from an object that is a tree beyond consciousness. So that's the natural attitude. I, I, uh, I, I, I have that. Uh, um, I presume that the 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 contents of my conscious experience refer to things in the world. And um, Husserl says, well, what we need to do is. Uh, uh, sort of suspend that natural attitude so that we can focus on the contents of consciousness itself, The this representation. What are the conditions for the, the arising of this appearance? And that's I mean, the phenomenological project. Yeah, yeah, I just want to jump in there. I've heard it seen in terms of, 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 of a bracketing. Yep, right? yep. Which, yep. Which, which, to be clear, when, when, I've, when I've taught students this, I, they get very confused sometimes about this, which makes a lot of sense. But is it's not that you don't have your natural kind of uh, 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 mode of approach. It's saying you may still pick that up or you may incorporate it, but you want to bracket it first to try and get at the phenomenological, the actual experience, the existence before you get to whatever else you want to put into it beforehand to try to get the thing itself. And then you you, you can pick up what your kind of natural occurrence is and see if it if yep. if you want to continue to do that or you update it or not so it's not that you totally just put it in the trash you're right. just you're putting it on the shelf you're bracketing yeah. that and yeah. then to try and get at the thing itself because it's it's you're trying to get at the the core elements of it cuz then that's going to give you know springing out of that is going to to give you more uh of a i don't know a 360 view or a more robust view of the thing itself which would then you know, basically, you're trying to do this kind of uh, investigation of, of of what you're, you know, observing or what have you, and that you can't do that unless you bracket first your kind of natural predisposition towards coming to it, because of many of the things that are nice about what we come to also uh, kind of give us a kind of myopic way of looking at things, and and that's mm-hmm. not the thing that you don't want to do. Is, is that about right here? Yeah, no, I think that bracketing is a, that that term really is helpful, and in in that in that notion of bracketing or suspending the judgments that you make about right, 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 right. the reality that 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 you imagine must correspond to the content of your conscious experience, right? Yep, that's absolutely right. And so when we when we reduce um, our investigation, our field of investigation with Husserl to just the content of consciousness and we no longer 
engage in that natural attitudes tendency to, to, to imagine this to be revealing the world beyond conscious experience, um, the physical world or the, the external world. We sort of just, as you said, set that aside um, methodologically, just for the purpose of this right, methodological right. Right, study of the contents of consciousness to see what we can know. Um, for Heidegger, that's what means Husserl is still operating within that Cartesian subject-object uh, relation. It's one of the things that indicates that because it shows that he's thinking of the subject as the ultimate ground of these conscious experiences and can be disconnected from the objects that are being perceived or being imagined or being hoped for or whatever, you can separate off those objects from the contents of uh, a consciousness. Whereas Heidegger, if this subject is not a subject at all, but a Dasein, a being in the world, then all of this is already the world showing itself to us and Dasein's sort of connectedness to the world. But so for Heidegger, he says, yeah, yeah, we do need a phenomenological reduction, but we don't reduce from the our our natural attitudes tendency to claim to 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 see our the content of our experience as connected to an external world uh to the and withdraw that to the content of consciousness itself or experience itself rather we reduce from beings to being we mm. we 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 show that being not 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 the structures of intelligibility that belong to consciousness not those as the conditions for the appearance of a being, but being as the condition for the appearance of a being. So we reduce down to being. We we dig beneath, we ask after, as part of our new radicalized method, phenomenological methodology, we ask after being as the, the subtending ground of the appearance of beings. So Heidegger says we reduce down to being as the ground of beings. And that's 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 the new reduction. It's not reducing beings to the structure of con uh, subjectivity, it's reducing beings to the ground of being that allows for them to present themselves as beings. So that's the first step. But then fascinating, and then he says, and what we need uh, to supplement that is a destruction. That is, we have to take apart those traditional um, uh, uh, influences that tend to require of us only a... Um, a, a, a focus on beings. Uh, we need to uh, interrupt those destructively, showing their sort of genealogical development um, out of these moments in the history of philosophy, so that we're, we enable ourselves to engage in that reductive moment. And by the way, the reduction, destruction, and construction are all um, one maneuver. It's all simultaneous. It's not that you would do them in series or something like that. So the destruction is supporting the capacity to reduce down to this uh, uh, subtending ground of being. And then the most fascinating one for me is construction, yeah. that an essential part of the phenomenological method for this 1927 Heidegger is constructing a notion of being because being is precisely that which, by definition, can't present itself to to experience. It's it's the subtending ground for the appearance of beings, for beings to present themselves. But it necessarily eclipses itself in being the condition for this appearing. So what our what our thought focuses on are these beings that it allows to appear. But it's the event of their appearing that necessarily 
is 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 withheld from 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 our, our our experience of those beings and so we have to construct that it's almost yeah elsewhere in throughout the 20s he'll talk about it in terms of creativity mm. he'll talk about it in terms of the philane or loving that belongs to the philosophical project the loving of wisdom that that distance that opens up between our object being what we're trying to think so but here he talks about it as construction we need to construct a notion of being sort of project out beyond the content of our experience and that's an essential part of really engaging in the phenomenological project i'm i'm as you're talking about the construction piece here it, it, it is curious i'm i'm immediately jumping to a little bit later heidegger where he has this wonderful uh, long essay on the question of art is this right no mm -hmm. no it's the yeah. question concerning technology but there's a big big um the origin of the, of the work of art yeah, yeah. The origin of the work of art and I believe he and Nietzsche both believed very strongly that art has is 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 the seat of truth, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's mm -hmm. where you get truth. You don't get yeah. it from all these other things. You get it from there. Is yeah. is some of this kind of uh, kind of triptych kind of reduction construction destruct or destruction construction? Also, kind of seen in if you were talking in terms of creativity or things like that. Mm -hmm. Is that where kind of you know art comes into play here too? As you're you're constructing is something that you mm -hmm. you it's it's a literal uncovering covering yeah. when you're when you're you're doing art um, in different obviously mediums. Now we could have the, yeah. the, the 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 there's another another a trail here of saying well what is art? That's a different question mm -hmm. necessary. But but yeah. but in terms of here this kind of this art where you can kind of get out from that that being of that this this truth that is art is that kind of another aspect of this uh, construction piece that he's he's talking about or in even his earlier work but kind of comes about in a different way in this big uh, essay here mm -hmm. yeah i i think so xavier i i i i would say that there's a a sort of a a similar um a similar dynamic that's uh, that's being approached from different sides so um, on the one hand, the, the work of art, right, is this, what's fascinating about a work of art is that it's distinct from uh, a, a work of, say, mechanistic production, right? So when, you know, what, as you said, we might disagree about what qualifies as a work of art, but we have these two different um, categories, and one is a work of art, and the other thing is just a produced object, right? Um, and so one fascinating thing is well okay if you have a work of art and it's it's grounded in the materiality of the thing that it's produced it seems to relate to that material ground differently than the merely fabricated object the non-artistically fabricated object that seems to sort of be a situation where the form organizes the material for use but with a work of art, there's something kind of quasi miraculous by definition present there. Even maybe somebody will come along and say, well, I don't agree that there are works of art. There's only fabricated. Okay, that's fine. That's a position. But if you have the category you know, available to you that there are works of art, that there are material objects that are constructed artistically, then the question is, okay, well, how does that thing relate differently to how does that form organize its material ground differently than the fabricated object and i think what we have is a kind of 
uh, abyssal ground that the, the 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 art object points down to in a way that the fabricated object doesn't, yeah. Um, yeah. as we normally experience them. Now, elsewhere, Heidegger will say even even ordinarily fabricated uh, objects can do this if you have the right sort of attitude toward them, like a jug. He'll talk about that, and the the or he'll talk about a tower on the landscape as sort of doing this. But in the work of art essay, it's artistic objects have this kind of um, special ability to present themselves and point to a ground out of which they emerge that they don't they don't give you that that that, that withholds itself and so for Heidegger he's, he wants to say that's a work of art and 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 works of art point to that here I think in the construction in this notion of creases that we uh, that uh, you mentioned uh, earlier that 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 Heidegger, I think, um, uh, is is draws out of Aristotle that Werner Marx picks up on. Um, so, creases as separation. Uh, yep. That is, you know, and Marx says basically, in our attitude uh, of questioning, we experience or investigating, we experience a creases, and creases comes from krinane, uh, the Greek word which means to separate or to to cut, right? To 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 divide from one another. So a crisis is a separation. So when we're investigating a subject matter, we experience that separation. We experience its distance from us, right? right. That, that's why we're investigating. If we possessed it completely and knew it utterly, we wouldn't be investigating it. It's it's withholding itself that is recorded in our activity of questioning and investigating. And what um I think what what Heidegger wants to suggest, he he draws this our attention to this idea of crisis and critical science, critical thinking, um, crisis in relation to that critic, that that kritische uh, notion in um, in German. And I think the idea is what we usually imagine is that that crisis or that separation through the investigation is overcome. We we if the investigation is successful, we would. We would do away with this separation, this division, and we would get immediate access to the thing, ideally, and we would know it completely. And what Heidegger wants to suggest is, no, no, the crisis has to stay. We have to have a way of thinking the thing where we allow it to withhold itself, where it doesn't give itself utterly and completely. And part of it's not giving itself utterly and completely to our understanding would be it's pointing down to this ground that we can't get perfect access to. So the the limit to the intelligibility of the work of art that it points to, it's it's sort of abyssally grounded character that makes it kind of miraculous. Heidegger wants to say that's that's what we experience, that separation in the questioning moment. And we need to figure out a way to hold on to that allowing something to be, remain withdrawn or separate from us and include that in how we know it. Now we know it, but we don't overcome that separation completely. And that's a, a kind of what this phenomenological mode of thinking would, would, would allow for, because we would be constructing its ground rather than presuming to utterly reveal it or, or disclose it. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's so... It's just so rich in in yeah. in kind of a way of 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 thinking about you know kind of just ways of being you know uh, mm-hmm. for for us as humans even even now of course and I think that that's really important 
So, so the the last question I have is is what what can we What's the the final uh, punchline here? If, if, if people reading your your work, what do you want them to kind of walk away? You know, kind of uh, the bottom line, I guess. What's the thing that you want to take away is about Heidegger's positive destruction of of Aristotle and and, and ergo tradition, and and how can we just, I guess, maybe use some of that to look at philosophy more generally? Yeah, thanks. I, I think uh, so. My my pitch in the book is that this is a this is a peculiarly powerful uh, method for engaging with the the tradition of Western metaphysics, the the tradition of interpreting being that we uh, inherit. So, my idea is that if you inherit this tradition today, there there are people in the world who are remain perhaps untouched by that Western tradition, untouched by its influence, untouched by Aristotelian ontology. And uh, for them, then this, this doesn't apply. But if, if you find yourself sort of uh, under the influence of this tradition and you, you find that tradition today to be suspect, which I think we do in a really profound and newly, um, newly, newly threatening way, I guess I'd say, um, insofar as for a long time, we would critique our tradition uh, in the war, not fairly recently, but it was possible to critique our traditional, uh, our, our the tradition of, say, Western philosophy. And that critique took the form of we had concepts uh, in Western thought, but we misapplied them. So, for instance, we could look at the the shameful tradition of slavery in the U.S., and we could say, well, that's that's an instance of where we had the concept of human beings, but we misapplied it. We said it only belongs to these people of this type, and it doesn't belong to those people of those types. And so that's a misapplication of concepts. So we could say, well, we've we've done a poor job of applying our concepts in the West. And that's one way of critiquing the tradition. But I think now we're suspicious in a deeper sense. We are suspicious that maybe our very concepts themselves have tendencies toward exclusion or marginalization, biases sort of baked in. And now we're wondering what, how we can think, how we proceed in the project of thinking if our very concepts themselves are now open to questioning. It's not just the application of concepts, but the concepts themselves. And I think Heideggerian destruction gives us a way, a really powerful way of digging back into the ground of those concepts, showing that ground out of which that rich, not entirely incorporated ground out of which they emerged, and then um, thinking newly and differently with those concepts, potentially. Uh, so that, that's what I think the book makes an argument for, um, in terms of the value and, and potential function of Heidegger's destruction of Aristotle. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely very, uh, convincing for me. I'll say Uh, it was, it was, uh, I really, really enjoyed, uh, the argument you put forth and it was, it was so nice to, to read two of my favorite thinkers, uh, together. Um, I, I really like that kind of work, this kind of comparative kind of thing or or this interaction i guess you could say mm-hmm. um 
so uh, again, the book is uh, Heidegger and the Destruction of Aristotle and How to Read the Tradition. Uh, where, where can uh, folks find this book and uh, where are the best places to find yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it'll be out um, July 2023 with Northwestern University Press. Uh, so um, please uh, look into it. Uh, and uh, um, the uh, as far as uh, I'll I'll be probably um, doing a little bit of uh, uh, related work in the coming um, uh, months, I guess, and and maybe you're on on Heidegger and Aristotle um, at the uh, the um, North Texas Heidegger Symposium uh, this uh, this spring, uh, and uh, and onward maybe at ancient the Ancient Philosophy Society as well, maybe next year. So um, those are venues where I where I would be presenting this this work. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, uh, you know, Sean, this was this was a lot of fun. I mean, the the time always goes by very quickly, and uh, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, I would say we could talk for a lot longer, but uh, I know I know uh, it would be very nice to get you back on here again with all of your other work that you're working on. So it really was uh, a very fulfilling conversation, at least for me. So I, I'm very grateful for you uh, having the, the conversation for a couple hours. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Xavier. It was it was, it was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Yes, yes, same.